If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 this morning, so why don't you turn there. Genesis 15. It's good to see all your faces. I see some new faces. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here, and we have been studying the book of Genesis together. So we are now in Genesis chapter 15. We're going to study the whole chapter. So I will read all of these verses in Genesis 15. We'll also have the words up on the screen behind me. So if you will, follow along. This is Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are God's promises. Let's pray. Oh God, we, uh, we praise you because you are so faithful. You've made these wonderful promises for us and and you are faithful to fulfill them. So God, I pray that you would use this time this morning to help us learn about your promises better and to hope more in your faithfulness to fulfill them. In Jesus Christ, your son. In his name we pray, amen. So when we bought our house here in Albuquerque, we, uh, we were still living in Kentucky. So has anybody else had that privilege of buying a house from across the country? 
It's a little complicated, right? So actually the house that we bought here in town, I had not laid eyes on until the day that we moved in. I had seen it in videos and photos, but I had never seen the house itself. But when we were going through that process of buying the house, uh, when we were closing, actually the day that we closed on the house, the title company sent a guy to our apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. And he showed up with this big stack of papers and like a binder, and he had pens and a stamp. And he sat down at our tiny little kitchen table in our apartment, and he got everything set up. So we were sitting across from him, and he set his stack here, and he gave us our stack, and he you know, gave us the pens, and he had a stamp. And then, and then for like the next eight hours, we... <laughs> We signed this, we initialed that, he would stamp something and write in his little book, and we'd go through this whole, this whole thing. But at the end of it, he just handed me the stack of papers, and he said, congratulations, you're a homeowner. And I, I took the piece of paper and said, this, this means I own property in New Mexico, <laughs> of all places. This is really important, I guess. I need to hold on to these, because it meant I owned property that I had never seen before. But it was a guarantee. It made certain that what I had purchased was mine. Even though I hadn't seen it yet, even though I hadn't been there, when I got there, it was mine. I had the proof right there. But what we have in this text this morning, strange as it might seem at first, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a guarantee. This is God making Abram or Abraham a guarantee that all of the things that he promised, if you were with us in chapter 12, remember he made a threefold promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to bless you. And what we have in chapter 15 is God guaranteeing those promises through what's called a covenant, a formal covenant. So just like I knew I had certainty that I owned that property I had never seen, God is going to give Abraham certainty in this text, and we will see it certainty for all of us who have trusted in the offspring of Abraham and Jesus Christ, all of God's promises guaranteed for us in chapter 15. So as we're going to study through this chapter this morning, the structure of this is really neat, actually. It's two big sections that work in parallel with each other. So it goes the same way twice. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham asks God questions or a question, and then God reaffirms the promise that he just made. So it's God promises, Abraham questions God, God reaffirms that promise. That's going to happen twice in these two big parts. And then sandwiched right in between them is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Genesis 15, 6. So as we go through this text this morning, we'll take it in those three parts. We'll consider those two big parts, and then we'll treat verse 6 all by itself in your outline. So let's start with this first, this first point, this first big part, verses 1 through 5. This is the Lord promises offspring. So if you look at verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So that, that phrase, the word of the Lord came to, and then that word vision, that, that's always used together later in the Old Testament for prophets. This is when the Lord comes to a prophet and gives them a prophetic vision. So Abram is being presented to us right here as a prophet. And then if you remember last week, Abram was presented to us as a king, wasn't he? So I know some of you theology types are thinking in that threefold office, is, is Abram ever going to be presented to us as a priest? We're going to have to come back and keep on reading. But verse 1 begins, after these things. What's that referring to? After what? Well, after chapter 14. 
So if you were with us last week, you remember Abram gets into a battle with four really bad kings that have come in and conquered the whole land and taken his nephew away. And so that whole experience, remember, it was very frightening. It was very harrowing. It would have shown Abraham how vulnerable he was in this land that is not his land, that's filled with enemies. It would have shown him how, how vulnerable he is. And yet God delivered him, helped him conquer these other kings. And then if you remember at the end of chapter 14, after Abram has rescued not only his, his own people, but also the people of Sodom, the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and offers him a reward. And you remember what Abraham did? He rejected it. He didn't want to take any reward from any earthly king because he didn't want anybody to think that his blessing was from anybody except Yahweh, from the Lord. And so he turns down that reward. Well, then chapter 15, verse 1 says, after that stuff, after these things. And what does God come in saying to Abram? Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So you see how it's all connected to chapter 14? Abram, you're not vulnerable. I know that there's other kings and and life is crazy, but I am your shield. I will deliver you. Just like I delivered you from those kings in chapter 14, I'm going to keep on delivering you. Actually, that word Melchizedek says that the Lord has delivered Abraham in chapter 14, verse 20. The word deliver and the word shield in Hebrew have the same root. They're the same words. They rhyme. And God is saying, I will always deliver you. I will always be your shield. And Abram, yeah, you turned down that reward from the king of Sodom, but I will reward you. And your reward will be very Great. So this is an incredible promise that God is making to Abram. And then we get his question, verse 2. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? What reward? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And what he means by that, this was uh, ordinary for the custom at the time, was for an older couple. So remember, Abram and Sarah, at this point, they're in their 70s, the 80s, maybe, Okay, so, so they're an older couple, and it was common for an older couple that had no children to adopt their most trusted servant in their household to inherit their estate and to take care of them when they were getting older. And so as it is, they have no children. Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit. Verse 3, Abram says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God has promised Abram a reward. Abram has rightly connected that idea of reward back to the promise of offspring that God made in chapter 12 and then that God remade in chapter 13. And, and so Abram is kind of like, what are, you, what are you doing? You keep on saying that you're going to bless me, you're going to make me into a great nation through my offspring, but I have no, no kids. I don't even have one. God, what are you going to give me? What is my reward? And I think it's okay to hear in Abram asking this question of God that he's struggling a little bit that he's wrestling with some doubt, wondering how God is going to fulfill his promises, not understanding God's promises. And so he is doubting. But I want to be really clear that this isn't the kind of doubt that is skeptical or suspicious. This isn't the kind of doubt that's trying to test God or disprove God. Okay, that, that kind of doubt just takes you farther and farther away from God. This is not that kind of doubt. This is the doubt of a believing man. This is like the doubt of uh, the man in the gospel according to Mark who cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's places here where I'm still struggling to understand what you're doing and, and I'm doubting and it's making me depressed and I'm, and I'm in despair. And so, Lord, I, I'm drawing near to you in my unbelief asking for your help. Do you see that that's what Abram's doing? 
He's doubting, he's, he's confused, and he takes it to the Lord. He's, he's praying to the Lord, asking for God's help. I think of James chapter four. It says, draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. And actually, God was the one that drew near first in this instance. Remember, it was the word of the Lord that came to Abram. It was the word of the Lord that initiated this conversation. And, and the text doesn't say this, but I was, I was thinking... I wonder if God didn't know what was going on in Abram's heart at this moment in his life. Because God knows our hearts. God knows where we're at. God knows what we're struggling with. Did God know that Abram was, was struggling in his faith? How many years has it been since God has made the promise and how many years have gone by since he hasn't had a child? Does, does God know that Abram's wrestling with these things? And that was why he came to him? Because he wanted to reassure him. He wanted to help him. He wanted to help Abram to continue to believe. But Abram draws near. He expresses his doubts and his concerns to God. And I say that we're the same way. It's okay. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to not understand what God is doing. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be doubtful and discouraged in these things. But it's not okay to, to run away from God in that. What you do is you do what Abraham does. You draw near to God and you express those. You ask God those big questions. God, what are you doing? Draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. What's so amazing about this moment in Abram's life is I think God is actually going to use this moment of doubt in Abram's life to make his faith even stronger on the other side. He's using this moment of weakness, of darkness in his life to actually make his faith stronger. And so it is with you. If you're in here and you're doubting, you're discouraged, you're depressed, take it to the Lord. Ask God about it and he will reassure you the same way that he did Abraham. But how did he reassure Abraham? This is so important in this text. How did God reassure Abraham in his doubts? Verse one, the word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord. Now for Abram, it came in a prophetic vision. And the reason why should be obvious. The Bible wasn't written yet. It's being, it's being written, right? This Abram is the part of the Bible. So Abram couldn't go to the Bible and, and go back to God's promises. So God sent a vision to him. But, but church, we have all of God's vision right here. We have all of God's promises for us right here. And so God is going to reassure you in your doubt the same way that he reassures Abram through his word. So if that's you, draw near, ask God those questions, and then study this and come to church and hear the word of the Lord as we tell you about all of the mighty promises that God has made for you, and that will reassure you. Abram asks this question of God, and God will reaffirm his promises. He's going to in verse four with this very, very striking visual metaphor. So verse four, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, the word of the Lord this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In the Hebrew, that literally says one from your own body. So a biological son shall be your heir. Verse five, the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So at this point, I got kind of curious According to astronomers, if you go out somewhere where there is no light pollution and you look up at the sky, you can see with the naked eye about 2,000 stars. And that got me thinking, that's not a mighty nation, 2,000 people. There's probably more people living in this neighborhood 
But the point, obviously, is not how many stars are there literally in the sky. Because if you ever tried to count 2,000 of something, especially something that you can't touch and, and sort out, you can't do it. That's the point. This is, this is parallel to what God said in chapter 13, 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. What's the point in both of these? And those metaphors are used together uh, quite often through the rest of the Old Testament, stars and dust. Well, what's the point? You can't count them. It's uncountable. It's like what John says in Revelation 7. He sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and language. He's looking forward to the fulfillment of this uncountable family, a nation of nations that came out of Abraham. But with this metaphor, that's what God is trying to encourage Abram by. And, and just think about it. what a beautiful scene. This is, so, this is so vivid, Genesis 15. Abram's doubting. He's wondering, God, you're saying this. Can I still trust you? It's been a long time. I have no kids. And God says, come outside and look at the sky. And have you ever been somewhere where you can see the Milky Way, like really good? I hope you have. If you haven't, today, Go. Just look up and you see all these stars and, and what we read this morning, that God made every one of those and ones that we can't even see. He knows every one of their names and he brought them all out of nothing. And he's saying to Abraham, just like that, out of nothing, out of your own body, I'm gonna make a whole nation that can't be counted. It's a beautiful scene. And Abram is probably just overwhelmed by what's happening. And then what is his response? What is his response to these promises? Well, this is our next point. Our second point in verse 6. Abram believes the Lord. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's reassured. God has helped him in his unbelief. God brought his word, told him again what his promises would be. And Abram continues believing. And I think that's how we should understand what's going on in verse 6. Some people want to read this more like a conversion experience. Like it was this one-time moment where Abram wasn't really believing before and then he looks up at the stars and suddenly he believes. But I don't think that's it because faith has defined Abram's whole journey up to this point, hasn't it? Hebrews says it was all the way back when he was in Ur of the Chaldees that God called him by faith. He left. So Abram has had faith and his faith here is reassured. Peter Gentry put it this way, Genesis 15.6 reports that Abram is, as a general rule, still strapped into the roller coaster and hanging on to his ride of faith. I loved that because that is the ride of faith, isn't it? We've even seen that in Abram's own life. There have been ups and there have been downs. But the point is, not that Abram has had this one-time mountaintop experience of like really, really great, awesome faith. It's that he has continued to stay strapped in. Amen. And his faith has continued to grow. That's the emphasis in Genesis. It's not on the degree of faith at any one moment. It's that the faith is there. And more than that, it's who the faith is in. And that is the God that made all those stars. Adam read Romans chapter 4 for us this morning, and there the Apostle Paul, he basically just preaches a sermon on Genesis 15. So if you have time to go study that later this week, but in verse 20 of Romans 4, it says, No unbelief made Abram waver concerning the promise of God, 
But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And again, what Paul is not saying is that Abram didn't struggle, that he didn't have highs, he didn't have lows in his faith. But the point is that he never wavered to the point of giving up. He never quit. He never, he never fell away. He stayed strapped in for the ride, and God was faithful to keep him in that faith. At just the moment when he started to doubt, at just the moment where he started to, to waver, God came in and said, no, 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 no. Remember the promises. Let me show you again. Let me keep teaching you. But God kept him in his faith. Abram believed it's so cool the way that Paul talks about this in Romans chapter four. So what did, what did Abram really believe? Well, as far as his own body was concerned, as far as his wife's body was concerned, they were what? They were as good as dead. That's what Paul says. It would have been impossible according to worldly ideas for them to bear any offspring. But God brings life from the dead. God brings life from the dead and that was what Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what 15, six says. God saw his belief and credited it to him, counted it to him as righteousness. And as I said, this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. We've already seen it in Romans chapter four. It's gonna come up again in the book of Galatians. It will also come up in the New Testament book of James. These New Testament authors are making a lot of hay out of this Old Testament idea of Abram being declared righteous, counted righteous by faith. To be righteous, to be counted righteous, is the same idea in the New Testament as being justified. Righteous and justification, righteousness and justification are the same words in the New Testament. So to be counted righteous is to be considered as having perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. To be righteous is to be a right person with God, to be an upright person, to have lived perfectly. So that if you have been righteous, when God the judge... Okay, so judge, justice, righteousness. When God the judge looks at you, if you are righteous, he not only says, you're not guilty, but he looks at you and says, you're perfect. You have perfectly obeyed my law and righteousness at every point. And all of us should hear that and say, not me. There's a lot of unrighteousness in my life. But Abram was counted righteous. And it's important to know that this idea with, with righteousness, it's not like a scale thing. This is how so many of us think about how we stand before God. Like, like our righteous things, if we do more righteous things than unrighteous things, that somehow that tips the scales. If we're more good than we're bad, then the good things cancel out the bad things. But that's not how it works. Okay? No matter for all of your righteousness, you are still held accountable for all of your unrighteousness. Do you get this? Okay, think of someone that has committed murder. They are accountable for their murder no matter how many weekends they spend at the soup kitchen. Those don't cancel each other out and they don't before God. So any bit of unrighteousness in you deserves punishment from God. And that's what the book of Romans says, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we, the wages of our sin is death. So the promise that someone can be counted righteous apart from their works. Well, that's nothing less than the promise of forgiveness. That's nothing less than the promise of salvation from wrath. That's nothing less than the promise of a right relationship with God. 
that's nothing less than the promise of eternal life. So is it any wonder that these New Testament guys, when they hear of somebody who is counted righteous apart from their works, that they clue in on that? Because that's a big deal. If there is a way to be counted righteous apart from our works, then we need to know what that is. And Abram was counted righteous. How? Was it because he was a good guy? No, we've already seen. He, he did some messed up stuff. All have sinned and fall short, including Abram. But Abram was counted righteous, counted perfect morally before God. How? By faith. He believed. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith that God can do what he said he can do. Faith that God can bring life from the dead. And the teaching of the New Testament is that if we have that same faith, if we have faith in the same God, the same God of Abraham, who can bring life out of death, the same God who has revealed himself much more fully to us in Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, if we have faith in that God like Abraham, then we are counted righteous with Abraham. And that is really good news. That is very good news. Romans 4, again, Paul writes the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is for us. It's true for us if we share the faith of Abraham and the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. But what Paul is saying is this all goes back to those promises that God made to Abraham. This is all one story. This is all one story. So let's finish this chapter before we really see how all of this ties together. So let's go to our third point, verses 7 through 20. This is the Lord makes a covenant with Abram. So remember I said these two big sections, they're in parallel. God is going to make a promise. Abram's going to ask a question. God's going to reaffirm that promise visually. So it starts with this promise, and really see that the promise is just one more aspect of what he made in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he promised land, seed, and blessing. Well, at the beginning of 15, we saw the promise of offspring. I'm going to give you offspring that's going to number like the stars in the heavens. Now he's going to come back to the promise of land for that offspring to live in. So verse 7, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The land is the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine, the, the promised land. And this is so, verse seven, it's so cool. Uh, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, in the book of Exodus, when God makes a covenant with Israel, he says the same thing, only I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the original audience, the Israelites, would have heard this and they would have started thinking, okay, we got some covenant stuff that's coming. This is gonna be cool. God makes the promise. I'm gonna give you this land to possess. And then just like in verse two, Abram's gonna ask another question. Verse eight Abram said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And you see, this question's a little different. The tone of this question is a little different from the one he asked in verse two. He's still asking, he's still taking his questions to God, but now there's not as much bitterness. Now there's not as much doubt or despair, but he still wants to know, he still needs God's help. God, help me, how am I going to know that I will possess this land? And God's going to make it certain again. He's going to reaffirm it again, and he's going to use this visual, only this time it's got way more significance. So verse 9, he says, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a goat three years old, and a ram, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon, 
All of those animals that are listed there, these are all animals that are later going to factor into the Levitical system. These are all Levitical sacrificial animals that the priests in the temple in Jerusalem would use, okay? So these are all uh, very, very common Jewish symbols. But at the time, God just says, bring these animals, and Abram brought them all. And then what's he do? He cuts them in half, and he lays each half over against the other. That means he spread them out. He didn't cut the birds in half. And then birds of prey, vultures, came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And this is probably the point where you're like, what is happening? The star stuff, the star stuff, that was really cool. This I don't get so much. But did you notice, Abram didn't ask a question about this. This wasn't weird to Abram. He knew exactly what was going on. When God said, hey, get these animals and cut them in half, Abram was like, oh yeah, it's on. Because this is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the guy showing up at your house from the title company with a stack of papers and a stamp. That makes sense to us. And Abram knows exactly what God is doing when he says, get these animals, cut them in half. He says, prepare the ceremony. We're going to make a covenant. This is how you make a covenant. This is how everybody in the ancient Near East made covenants. Covenants were very common. What a covenant is, is a formal arrangement, a formal relationship that's made between two people or two parties of people that are not relatives. So this isn't a family thing. This is, this is people that aren't relatives coming together and making a formal, enduring relationship with each other. That includes promises. That includes commitments. Okay? So this is how they made these, these very special oaths or arrangements, relationships with one another. So this is how you would make a military treaty. If two armies were going to say we're not going to fight each other, they would make a covenant. This is how uh, a king that conquered a, a client state, he would make an arrangement with them to be their king by cutting a covenant, by making a covenant. This would be the way that two individuals that were trying to make some personal agreement would make an arrangement with each other through a covenant. And this was how marriages were established. Marriage is a covenant. A wedding is a covenant ceremony. And this is the same for us today, only we don't cut animals in half at weddings. And I think we're the worse off for it. No, 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 I really do. Hear me out. So <laughs> what's really special about a covenant is what these animals symbolize. So this is how you would make a covenant in the ancient Near East. Okay, and we have examples of this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Okay, we, 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 this is how they would do it. They would, they would take an animal, cut it in half, spread it out. And remember, this is like dirt everywhere. We're in the ancient Near East. Okay, so there's dirt everywhere. And there would be blood and guts all over the place. And the way you made a covenant is the two people that were making the agreement with each other, they would walk through all of this blood and guts together. And while they did that, they would recite the promises of the covenant. And all of that stuff would get on their feet. I mean, they didn't have sneakers, you know, and it was getting up in their robe and they were getting all gross and dirty. And I just think, imagine a, a bride walking in her wedding dress. <laughs> but what is that symbolizing? how serious this commitment is. What they're doing when they're walking through the animals like that is it's called a self-malediction. They're taking an oath against themselves. If I break this covenant, if I fail to fulfill my promises, let me be like what happened to these animals. Kill me like them if I don't uphold my end of this relationship. It's serious. And God sees your marriage as just as serious, right? He sees every covenant as being just as serious. And so he 
enters into this ceremony with Abram. He tells him, go get these animals, cut them in half. The word, the word uh, make a covenant, so it says God made a covenant. In Hebrew, that's actually always the word cut. Whenever it says somebody made a covenant, it's actually they cut a covenant because there's always this cutting an animal in half. That's always what is happening. So God says, go get these animals, cut them in half. And then verse 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It says, a deep sleep fell on Abram. The last time somebody in the Bible has had a deep sleep fall on them, do you remember who it was? Adam. Adam in the garden. When God took the rib out of his side and then made another covenant between Adam and Eve. And actually made a covenant between himself and creation. Okay, so this deep sleep falling, it always precedes a covenant in the Bible. And it also says, Abram is a new Adam. Same thing, that Abram is going to stand in that same line, in that same hope that we had in a better Adam. So Abram falls into this deep sleep, and, and then God starts talking to him in verse 13. God says, no, for certain your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. There'll be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So this is God making promises. This is what's gonna happen with your offspring. You are gonna be a great nation. This is what's gonna happen. Verse 15, as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. I'll be your shield all the way up until you die a natural death, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then there your offspring shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 16 is really important. We can't spend a ton of time thinking about it. But what God is saying is, I am going to give this land to your offspring. And your offspring taking possession of this land is going to involve them warring against and killing all of the people that live here. But why is God doing that? Because they're under judgment. Their iniquity will be full. But it's not full yet. That's what he's saying. That's why they have to wait to take possession of the land because the Amorites aren't as bad as I know that they're gonna be in 400 years when they deserve my wrath poured out on them through my people. So this is even there, right there. We see God is a patient God. Our God isn't slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that they would repent. So God's being patient with the Amorites, but he says there will be a day when I'm gonna pour out my wrath on the Amorites through Israel, and in that day, I'm going to give them this land that I promised you. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river, you, uh, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Jebusites, these 10 nations that are currently possessing the land. So this is God reiterating those promises, but notice he doesn't really say anything different than he said in chapter 12. He's just unpacking it more. He's saying the same thing. This is all part of the same covenant. And actually it's gonna come up again in chapter 17 when he gets the, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. But God goes through this whole thing. He makes all of these promises. And do you see why he's doing it? Remember verse eight. What did Abram ask? God, how do I know? How do I know that you're gonna give me this land? And God says, this is how you know. This is how you know. This is your stack of papers that says you own this land. Only it's better because it's a covenant. And a covenant's a relationship. 
That title guy didn't come to my house and then move into my bedroom and say, I will be your notary public and you will be my people. Wherever you go, I It was not an enduring relationship. This is the difference between a covenant and a contract. Right? Like, my bank didn't even keep my mortgage for about a month and then they sold it to another bank in Idaho. There's not a relationship there. But this is a relationship. God is saying, Abram, you know, because I'm your God. And I'm going to always be your God. And I'm going to fulfill my promises. And if I don't, let what happened to these animals happen to me. That's what God is saying. Because did you, did you see who passed through the pieces? Like I said, usually in a covenant, it's two, the two parties, the two non-relatives in the agreement, they both walk through the pieces. But Abram didn't walk through the pieces. Abram was asleep. And God walked through the pieces. How do you say you know it's God? I thought it was a pot and a torch. What's that about? Well, these symbols don't come up again in the Bible, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, is always revealing himself as fire and smoke. Think of the burning bush. Think of what happened at Mount Sinai. It was fire and smoke. Think about Israel. Again, the first readers of the book of Genesis, think about how they have been led through the wilderness for the last 40 years with a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And so they see this, this pot and this torch pass through the pieces. That's Yahweh. And it's only Yahweh. And Yahweh is saying, if I don't keep my end of this agreement, if I don't keep these promises, let me be like this. And what does Abram think then? How can Yahweh die? In one way we know he can't. And so that just proves how certain this promise is. This is like Hebrews chapter six, where it says, when God made a promise, he didn't have any higher up to go. He didn't have anybody higher to swear by, so he swore by himself so that we know we have a steadfast anchor. That this promise can't be broken because God can't die. But in another way, we say, how can God die? And I think we see here in Genesis 15, glimmers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what God is saying, by walking through these pieces alone, is that I am going to uphold this covenant for me, and I'm going to uphold this covenant for you. I'm going to take the curse for both of us. So if I don't keep this covenant, which is impossible, I will always keep this covenant, but even if I couldn't, I would suffer the consequences. But Abram, if you don't keep your end of this covenant, and there were commitments that Abraham was making, right? That, that covenants are not conditional or unconditional, it's just kind of on a spectrum of conditionality, okay? This one is very asymmetrical. But a- Abram was still supposed to respond with faith. This whole thing happened after he was counted righteous by faith. And so this is saying, Abram, if you don't respond with the obedience that comes from faith that you ought to, you break the covenant, I will still suffer the curse for you. You just stay there and sleep. And I will take this on myself. And that was what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? That Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. This is why Jesus, the son of God and God the son, had to be born in the flesh so that he could die. So that he could die. The death that you deserve to die for your unfaithfulness. We said, no one is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God's law. Jesus was righteous and he died on the cross. Not for his own sin, but for yours. Romans chapter five, verse six that we read this morning. It was while we were still 
weak that Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came and he died for you. He says, okay, all of that unfaithfulness, all of your failure to keep this relationship with God, this this lack of commitment on your part, give me all of it, all of your sin. I'm gonna take all of it and I'm going to die like those animals in Genesis 15. I'm going to die in your place. The curse is on me. And even more than that, all of Jesus' righteousness that he earned by living this perfect life as a human, as the offspring of Abraham, all that righteousness he gives to you instead. So you put all of your sin on him and he gives you all of your righteousness. He died and God raised him from the dead. And if you believe that, then you are counted righteous. You are justified before God. More than that, you enter into a new relationship with God a new covenant in Christ's blood, uh, which is really just the the fulfillment and the expansion of Genesis 15, this, this covenant that God made to Abraham, this new covenant in Christ's blood. It just says, all of it's yours, and you can be counted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. So I ask, have you believed that? If you have not believed that, then all of your unrighteousness is still counted against you. And you will be judged. But God is saying, I'll take it. Give it to me. And you will be counted righteous by faith. And if you have believed this, or if you will believe this, then church, think about what is yours. This new relationship with a God who is faithful to fulfill all of his promises to you. Everything that he said to Abraham and more, every promise in the Bible has been guaranteed for you through the new covenant. And so you know it's yours. Even if you haven't seen it yet, you know it's yours and you can claim it for yourself. Oh, this was such good news for me when I was studying this passage. It was after a week when my whole family had gotten sick and I was like three days behind on work and I was super stressed out. Can anybody, am I the only one that has ever gone through this? I was so stressed and anxious. And in my anxiety, I was really starting to doubt, to wonder if God was really good for me. And so I was walking my dog in the morning and I was thinking about these verses. And I just came back to Genesis 15, 1, praying, God, you're my shield. You're my shield. You're gonna protect me from all of the things that I'm afraid of right now. And it's not just kings coming in and, you know, killing you that we are afraid of. We're afraid of little things. And God says, I'm going to protect you from the little things too. And so I was just walking around and it was so, so sweet for me to pray, God, you're my shield. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to worry. But how do I know that this thing that God said to Abraham is for me? Am I just taking that out of context? No, because of Jesus. In the new covenant, everything that God promised Abraham, that's mine. And so I was holding on tight, church, to that promise. You're my shield. You're my deliverer. And my reward is very great. And whether I get it this week or whether I get it in this life, it's mine. And God's going to keep me. And so I did. I'm walking my dog and say, you know what? No matter what happens at work this week, I still get to go to heaven. (laughs) Because of the covenant that God made with Abraham, fulfilled in the covenant through Jesus Christ and his blood. That's ours. It's yours, but you have to wait. You have to wait. I think this is the thing. We're going we're gonna to end on this point. I think this is the thing 
that gets overlooked in this passage quite often. You go back to verse 12. It says there's a dreadful and great darkness that came over Abram. There were vultures, birds of prey, okay? these, these unclean animals that were coming and attacking the clean animals. And what drove them away? Abram drove them away, okay? But it's ominous. It's dark. It's scary. And then when God starts talking in verse 13, he gives Abram very bad news. He prophesies about what's coming for Abram and for his descendants. He says, no, for certain, you're gonna be so, your, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. And they'll be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's what God's promising him. It's not all going to be sunshine and roses for your people, Abram. There's going to be affliction. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. This is talking, of course, about Israel's enslavement in Egypt for 400 years. And their affliction was heavy on them. God's saying to Abram, you're not even going to see these promises. You're going to die. And you're going to have greeted them from afar, as the book of Hebrews says. And I will give it to your offspring, but they've got to suffer first. They've got to endure suffering first. And we think, so it was with Christ. So it was with Christ, the true offspring of Abraham. How did, how did he reach his glorification? How did he reach the joy set before him? It's by enduring the cross. Christ didn't get to take hold of the blessings of Abraham any other way than, than God promised, but through suffering. And so it is for us. God is saying, I will be your shield. Your reward is very great. But it's not here yet. And so in this life you will suffer. In this life there will be affliction. In this life there will be things that cause you to doubt. To doubt God's promises. And there's a, in this life there's going to be things that bring you to despair. And so we do the same thing that we started with, that Abram started with. We turn back to the word of the Lord. We turn back to his promises. We set our mind fully on what those promises are and when they will be revealed to us. And we wait. But we wait with hope. Amen? I just thought it was so brilliant the way that Paul preached this little sermon on Genesis 15 in the book of Romans. That he talks about our, our justification by faith like Abram and then it leads right into Romans chapter 5. So let me close with these verses. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we will suffer until we take hold of these promises. But we rejoice because we know that suffering produces endurance just like it did for Abraham. God used it to make his faith stronger and endurance produces character. The obedience that comes from faith and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithful promises and for your faithfulness to fulfill those promises. God, thank you for all that we have stored up for us in Jesus Christ and God, I pray that you would cause us to hope in them even when we are afflicted, even when this life is difficult and we doubt 
and we despair. God, please don't let the affliction and difficulty in this life drive us away from you because where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. So God, please bring us back to your word and to hope in your promises to, to understand how certain and sure they are that you have made a covenant with us and you won't break it. And even if we are weak, just the right time, you died for the ungodly. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.